0: we are back we are doing it again doing it again and as is uh tradition on these episodes i introduce the episode and i do that by saying hello welcome to mark's madness pod we read books thanks for coming my name's nathan
1: my name's david
0: (laughs) and also traditionally when we do these episodes we do a current event segment at the top uh but this is the second recording for a week and there weren't really current events the first time we did that so we're gonna do even less current (laughs) events this time um And we are just going to be jumping right back into the work uh, with work that we are working through is blood in my eye by George Jackson. And we are going to start at page 120. Last paragraph. Reformism was allowed. The most degenerate elements of the working class were the first to succumb. The Vanguard Party supported the capitalist war adventure in World War II. Then they helped promote the mass consumers market that followed the close of the war, the flea market that muted the workers' genuine demands. Today, we are faced with a clearly different set of class antagonisms, the complexities of a particularly refined fascist economy, a fascist economic arrangement where the controlling elites have co-opted large portions of the lowly working class. When we ask ourselves, where will we attack the enemy state? We are answered, at the productive point. The next logical question is, with whom and what will we attack? The fortified entrance of the productive and distributive system in a nation of short-sighted, contented, conservative workers. Obviously, the fascist movement is counter-revolution at its very center. Fascist reformism is a calculated response to the classic scientific socialist approach to revolution through positive mobilization of the working class. From its inception, the fascist arrangement has attempted to create the illusion of a mass society in which the traditional capitalist ruling class would continue to play its leading role, a mass society that is not a mass society, a mass society of authoritarians whose short-term material interests are perfectly suited to the development of the perfect totalitarian state and centralized economy. The most precise definitions of fascism involve the concept of scientific capitalism or controlled capitalism, a sophisticated totalitarian learned response to the challenge of egalitarian scientific socialism. After a successful establishment in Spain, Portugal, Greece, South Africa, and the United States, we are now faced with the obvious question of how to raise a new consciousness.
1: This is, of course, apartheid South Africa, based on when he was writing this, by the way. Oh, the for sure. South yes, African yes. revolution came after this.
0: We are faced with the task of raising a positive mobilization of revolutionary consciousness in a mass that has gone through a contrapositive authoritarian process. The new vanguard elements seem to agree with that we withdraw from the enemy state and its social, political, and economic life is the first step towards its destruction. The new vanguard elements seem to agree that the new revolutionary consciousness will develop in the struggles of withdrawal. However, after this point of agreement, after this point, agreement grows vague and is all but lost in a sea of contradiction. The contention turns on one primary question, the scope and range of violence within the revolutionary process. After the lengthy and clearly unnecessary ideological battle that laid to rest a direct approach to revolution by the white or black worker, we are now faced with an equally unnecessarily ideological battle over which of the various communal, revolutionary, cultural approaches has the stronger revolutionary validity.
1: George has had enough of people's bullshit.
0: George would not have enjoyed Twitter very much. No, he would not. He would not. Uh, the problem is compounded by the almost apolitical withdrawal of the growing weatherman faction and their estranged allies on campus to organic food gardens and a life of sex, music and drugs. Their Nietzschean Hegelian withdrawal mimics the European historical sp- experience of the last five generations. In our equation, this must be considered the minor side of the syllogism. Though revolution is in fashion. The realistic cohesive synergism seems as yet impossibly remote. Uh, did I
1: mention – so, again, a uh, uh, podcast we think highly of is the Radio Free Amanda that Amanda Ye, Ye runs. Um, and uh, it they, – they did a whole episode on – and he's talking about the college campuses and this breaking down like Europe where it was made to try to imitate Europe um, and the push for – individualism and individuality as a politic where you know we've always said individualism bad individuality good but it starts becoming individuality bad where like you know it pushed creative writing for you know certain like away from content and especially away from class and and broad contents toward the personal experience and this was very explicitly CIA funded and you can see George here ripping on basically the exact
0: effects of that. Yeah exactly. Uh, Oh, yes. On the other side of the equation, we have Huey Newton's concept of black communes set well within the huge population centers of the enemy state. This concept accepts any level of violence that will be necessary to enforce the demands of the people and workers. These communes will be tied to one another by a national and international vanguard party and joined with the world's other revolutionary societies. They are the obvious answer to all the theoretical and practical questions and problems about an American revolution, a revolution that will be carried out principally by blacks. The question I've asked myself over the years runs this way. Who has done most of the dying, most of the work, most of the time in prison on Max Rowe? Who is the hindmost in every aspect of social, political, and economic life? Who has the least short-term interest, or no interest at all, in the survival of the present state? In this condition, how could we possibly believe in the possibility of a new generation of enlightened fascists who would dismantle their basis of hierarchy? Just how many Americans are willing to accept that physical destruction of some parts of their fatherland so that the rest of the land and the world might survive in good health? How can the black industrial worker be induced to carry out a valid worker's revolutionary policy? What and who will guide him? The commune. The central citywide revolutionary culture. But who will build the commune that will guide the people into a significant challenge to property rights? Carving out a commune in the central city will involve claiming certain rights as our own, out front. Rights that have not been respected to now property rights. It will involve building a political, social and economic infrastructure capable of filling the vacuum that has been left by the establishment ruling class and pushing the occupying forces of the enemy culture out from our midst. The implementation of this new social, political and economic program will feed and comfort all the people on at least a subsistence level and force the owners of the enemy bourgeois culture, either to tie their whole fortunes to the communes and the people or to leave the land the tools in the market behind. If he will not leave voluntarily, we will expel him. We will use the shotgun and the anti-tank rocket launcher. There, it's back. There it is. uh, I'm surprised there
1: was no flamethrower.
0: I am Uh, shocked. I I do think it was an escalation from shotgun to anti-tank rocket launcher, but I don't deny it. It is, is, you know, who am I? (laughs) Who will build on an ideal that begins with force? The Vanguard Party is now nationwide, but Vanguard Parties cannot build revolutions alone. Nor can a vanguard expect full party-line agreement before it moves in the direction of the people. Revolution is illegal. It's against the law. It's prohibited. It will not be allowed. It is clear that the revolutionary is a lawless man. The outlaw and the lumpen will make the revolution. The people, the workers, will adopt it. This must be the new order of things, after the fact of the modern industrial fascist state. That is very interesting and i i have very much been of that opinion for a long time now um, yeah um, well i mean it, it it makes perfect sense right in what world
1: is a revolution legal in a state is what we're overthrowing a state legal yeah exactly yeah and so of course you know you can't be like a good law abiding citizen or whatever the fuck people want to call themselves and be a revolutionary it just doesn't fit it doesn't make any sense
0: Uh, in blacks, the authoritarian traits are mainly the effects of terrorism and lack of intellectual stimulation. The communal experience will redeem them. At present, the black worker is simply choosing the less dangerous and complicated strategy of survival. All classes and all people are subject to the authoritarian syndrome. It is an atavistic throwback to the herd instincts, but it requires only the proper trauma, the proper eco sociological set of circumstances to bring forth a revolutionary consciousness
1: hmm mm-hmm. racism enters on the psychosocial level in the form of a morbid traditional fear of both blacks and revolutions The resentment of blacks and conscious or unconscious tendencies to mete out pain to blacks throughout the history of America's slave systems all came into focus when blacks began to move from the south to the north and from countryside to city to compete with the whites in industrial sectors and, in general, engage in status competition. Again, there is nowhere in this nation that isn't racist. It's not just a thing that's in certain places. Racism doesn't have a location. Resentment, fear, insecurity, and the usual isolation that is patterned into every modern capitalist industrial society, the more complex the products, the greater the division of labor, the higher the pyramid, the broader its base, and the smaller the individual brick tends to feel, are multiplied by ten when racism, race antagonism is also a factor. There is certainly no lack of evidence to prove the existence of an old and built-in character assassination of programmed racism. What class controls the nation's educational facilities, prints the newspapers and magazines that carry the little cartoons, and omits or misrepresents us to death, has always served to distract a deaf-use feelings of status deprivation suffered by the huge sectors above the black one? Again, you know, it's served to distract – read that again, you know, without the the parentheses for a second. There's certainly no lack of evidence to prove the existence of an old and built-in character assassination of programmed racism that has always served to distract and diffuse feelings of a status deprivation suffered by the huge sectors just above the black ones. You know, when you feel powerless – It fills in the gaps consciously or subconsciously when you're above someone else, right? When you're the white people and those black people are below you and you're one of the the master race. Or when you don't even think about explicit racism, but you're a law-abiding citizen and they're capital C criminals. And Mm -hmm. and they should have complied if they didn't want to get shot or get thrown in jail or or whatever. They're just druggies or or whatever you want to call people with, you know – ableist or, or not so subtly racist or classist slurs it, it it you know it makes you feel better about your own shortcomings and powerlessness and struggles and that sometimes is enough for people to throw their interests in the wayside, and that is their primary interest. That's how you get the violent, poor, racist, and then of course you get the the wealthy racists that see that and go, well, I'm I'm above that, I'm better that. The, the wealthy liberal that's too good, that's just a dirty backwards redneck thing, you know. And and all of that compounds into the same racist system. Then also to account for the seemingly dual nature recognizable in the authoritarian personality, conformity, but also strange-laden destructiveness, racism has always been employed as a pressure release from the psychopathic destructiveness evinced by a people historically processed to fear, to feel the need for a decision-maker, to hate freedom." The revolutionary is outlawed. The black revolutionary is a doomed man of all the forces of counter-revolution stacked up over his head. He's standing in the tank trap. He has dug. He lives in the crosshairs. No one can understand the feeling, but him from the beginning of his revolutionary consciousness. He must use every device to stay alive. Violence is a forced issue. It's incumbent on him. The very first political programs have had to be defended with duels to the death. The children's breakfast programs haven't been spared. The next round of commune building could cause the third great war of the century. But we must build with the fingers of one hand wrapped around a gun, an anti-personnel weapon. He just has to fit in the
0: anti-tank. If I don't have an RPG, I don't have anything.
1: (laughs) We could not leave the central city. This must be understood by the other revolutionary people if we are to move together to a conclusive action. The war will be fought in the nerve centers of the nation, the cities where Angela was finally captured as she was at the work for the revolution, where Huey was found hiding and working by the government's propaganda apparatus. We cannot withdraw from the cities. In order to complete the revolutionary syllogism, the fascists must be forced to withdraw. And under cover of the guns which force their withdrawal, we will build a new black commune, a blade in the throat of fascism.
0: And that ends our first section here and takes us to our next major section. Fascism. Just mm-hmm. fascism. It's and just, ad- yeah, I was yeah. going to say, he just simply states its most advanced form
1: is here in America. That's the whole thing. Pa- I mean, just, just take that page and just print it and just tape it everywhere. You can see mm-hmm. like any wall, anything.
0: Yep. <laughs> uh, so we are moving into uh, page 129 starts off with comrade john who is referring to john Thorne, the author's lawyer i've just finished reading angela's analysis of fascism she's brilliant she's a brilliant big quote unquote beautiful revolutionary woman ain't she I've studied your letters on the subject carefully. It could be productive for the three of us to get together at once and subject the whole question to a detailed historical analysis. There is some difference of opinion and interpretation of history between us. But basically, I think we are brought together on the principal points by the fact that the three of us could not meet without probably causing World War III. (laughs) Give her my deepest and warmest love and ask her to review these comments. This is not at all... This is not all that I will have to say on the subject. I'll constantly return to myself and re-examine. I expect I will have to carry this on for another couple of hundred pages. We'll deal with the questions as they come up, but for now, this should provoke both of you to push me on to a greater effort. The basis of Angela's analysis is tied into several old left notions that are at least open to some question now. It is my view that out of the economic crisis of the last Great Depression, fascism, corporativism did indeed emerge, develop, and consolidate itself into its most advanced form here in America. In the process, socialist consciousness suffered some very severe setbacks. Unlike Angela, I do not believe that this realization leads to a defeatist view of history. An understanding of the reality of our situation is essential to the success of future revolutionary revolutionizing activity. I repeat again, an understanding of the reality of our situation is essential to the success of future revolutionizing activity. To contend that corporatism has emerged and advanced is not to say that it has triumphed. We are not defeated. Pure fascism, absolute totalitarianism is not possible. Hierarchy has had 6,000 years of trial. It will never succeed for any long in any form. Fascism and its historical significance is the point of my whole philosophy on politics and its extension, war. My opinion is that we are at the historical climax, the flashpoint of the totalitarian period. It depends on how long you go because it it did it did keep <laughs> evolving, George. It did, it did it did it did keep going.
1: You know the the climax doesn't have to be one year, right? It can be a fifty year span. Exactly.
0: That's what I'm saying. You just gotta. I don't. I don't want people to say that. Oh, well, he, he's wrong. It wasn't. But yeah. I also want to say, you know, again, that historical periods happen over long. You know, again, decades mm-hmm. where nothing happens, weeks where decades happen, that sort of thing. Yes. The analysis in depth and the subject deserve, the analysis in depth that the subject deserves has yet to be done. Important as they are, both William Reich's and Franz Newman's work on the subject are limited. Uh, William Reich wrote the Mass Psychology of Fascism, uh, and Behemoth: The Structure and Practice of National Socialism was by Franz Newman. Uh, Reich tends to be over analytical to the point of idealism. I don't think Newman truly sensed the importance of the anti socialist movement. Behemoth is too narrowly based on the experience of German National Socialism, so there is so much to be done on the subject, and time is running out. If I am correct, we will soon be forced into the same fight that the old left avoided. We move on to another letter dated six twenty yeah. of seventy one. Um, oh before yeah, we get
1: In that, I will say too, since we're talking about, oh, you know, is he wrong? Something else kind of happened that I don't think anybody expected. um Certainly, you know, the capitals hoped for, but I don't think anybody expected, and that was the collapse of the Soviet Union, and that radically changes what you know the situation george was looking at
0: right oh for sure it is not defeatist to acknowledge that we have lost a battle how else can we regroup and even think of carrying on the fight at the center of revolution is realism to call one or two or a dozen setbacks defeat is to overlook the ebbing and flowing process of revolution coming closer to our calculations and then receding but never standing still if a thing isn't building it must be decaying As one force emerges, the opposite force must yield. As one advances, the other must retreat. There's a very significant difference between retreat and defeat. I'm not saying that our parents were defeated when I contend that fascist corporativism emerged and advanced in the U.S. At the same time it was making its advance, it caused by its very nature an advance in worldwide socialist consciousness. When U.S. capitalism reached the stage of imperialism, the Western great powers had already divided among themselves almost all the important markets in the world. At the end of World War II, when other imperialist powers had been weakened, the U.S. became the most powerful and richest imperialist power. Meanwhile, the world situation was no longer the same. The balance of forces between imperialism and the socialist camps had fundamentally changed. Imperialism no longer ruled over the world. No, did it play a decisive role in the development of the world situation. And that quote was by uh, Vo Nguyen uh, Giap.
1: Yeah, who was, and and we we talked about Giap. Before it came up, Giap was the the leader of the Vietnamese military under Ho Chi Minh, um, mm-hmm. who ultimately saw the defeat of the United States in the Vietnam War. So,
0: absolutely, in my analysis, I'm simply taking into account the fact that the forces of reaction and counter-revolution were allowed to localize themselves and radiate their energy here in the U.S. The process has created the economic, political, and cultural vortex of capitalism's last reform. My views correspond with those of all the third world revolutionaries, and if taken in the international sense, they are aggressive and realistic. The second notion that stands in the way of our understanding of fascist corporativism is a semantic problem. When I'm being interviewed by a member of the old guard and point to the concrete and steel, the tiny electronic listening devices concealed in the vent, the phalanx of goons peeping in at us, his barely functional plastic tape recorder that cost him a week's labor, and point out that these are all manifestations of fascism, he will invariably attempt to refute me by defining fascism simply as an economic geopolitical affair where only one political party is allowed to exist above ground and no opposition political activity is allowed but examine the definition of totalitarianism comrade no opposition parties are allowed in china cuba north korea or north vietnam such a narrow definition condemns the model revolutionary societies to totalitarianism despite the presence of political parties there is only one legal politics in the u.s the politics of corporativism. the hierarchy commands all state power there are thousands of ways however to attack it and place that power in the hands of the people
1: I love you, George. I just love I, you. Oh,
0: uh, George, <laughs> mwah, mwah. <laughs> I mean, just leave it like. But examine
1: that definition of totalitarianism, comrade. And again, you know, he's, he's looking at it like, yeah, you know, Arendt made this bullshit term totalitarianism, but it's it's a good term if it's used right. I, I don't even like George's use of it personally. I think we should go away from it, but I get I get where he uses it and how he uses it. And he's like, you know, if we just nakedly go, okay, one party's allowed above ground, now China, uh, Cuba, the DPRK, Vietnam, at the time, you know, he calls it North Korea for short, sure, like most Americans, and then he called it North Vietnam, because the time it was written, Um, you know, the USSR, all those are are suddenly totalitarian. And it's like, no, those are the model revolutionary societies. Those are who we should be emulating, you know, um, as if we see them as a collective group of socialist countries, right? We certainly don't want to turn away from that. And of course, since he didn't name the USSR, the four he named are, are of course, four extant communist societies, which is, he picked four that would survive the 90s. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was, it was great. All levels of struggle must be conceived as inclined planes, leading inexorably to a point where armed conflict will engulf two or more sections of the people. Armed struggle or organized violence is the natural outcome of a sequence of historical events that have matured to the point of impasse. This is not to say that war is for us only the only immediate recourse or the spontaneous result of a breakdown in lesser forms of political activity. Say it again. This is not to say that war is for us the only immediate recourse or the spontaneous result of a breakdown in lesser forms of political activity. We talked about this a lot last week. How, again, you're taking different tactics, you're on different roads, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean one's affecting the revolution or that one should be impeding your revolutionary conduct or anything like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, very much, you know, war is not, is not our only choice right now. We don't have to go civil war right now or anything. like We're not trying to turn around and make that happen tomorrow, nor should we just let it spontaneously like pop and, and do everything else, and then when it comes, oh, it comes, right? We have to be fully prepared for it and and make it happen if if it's appropriate, if that's our tactic, and it is something you make happen. Uh, but we should be thinking about all the tactics we have, all the recourse we have, and what is the most constructive? What is the best, right?
0: Yeah. Arm struggle or organize... Vi- oh, nope, nope, nope. Skip. Nope. I have Skip. always... I have always tried to emphasize that through every stage of political mobilization, there must be a corresponding and equal military mobilization of the people's forces. One is inextricably tied to the other, and not simply for the reason unwittingly put forward by the old guard that fascism allows for no valid opposition political party, though there is some truth in that position. My position is based on historical precedents that indicate the probable scope of range of violence in an American revolution. Mm -hmm. in the present class structure we represent the group with the greatest revolutionary potential we are black the significance of which needs very little analysis here though i will go into the mechanics of race at length later in dealing with the contextual structure of fascist hierarchy but mainly my position is rooted in the long history of the american business oligarchy's penchant for violent repression of any forces that have threatened its centralist movement and in the very natural defense reflexes of any form of state power Although as victims of one of history's most brutal contradictions, as the poorest of the poor, as blacks, it is quite justifiable and completely possible for us to destroy this country as a modern nation state, to attack it with a totally destructive countersweep of frustrated retaliatory rage. That is not our purpose. As revolutionaries, it is our objective to move ourselves and the people into actions that will culminate in the seizure of state power. Our real purpose is to redeem, not merely ourselves, but the whole nation and the whole community of nations from colonial community economic repression.
1: Yeah, let's, let's be very clear. Again, you know, he is not afraid of destruction, of destruct what is corrupt, of destruct what must be replaced. But the goal is not destruction. That destruction comes with a purpose. The goal is construction of a just decolonial world.
0: The US has established itself as the mortal enemy of all people's government. All scientific socialist mobilization of consciousness everywhere on the globe, all anti-imperialist activity on earth. The history of this country in the last 50 years and more, the very nature of all its fundamental elements in its economic, social, political and military mobilization, distinguish it as the prototype of the international fascist counter-revolution. The U.S. is the Korean problem, the Vietnamese problem, the problem in the Congo, Angola, Mozambique, the Middle East. It's the Greece and the British and Latin American guns that operate against the masses of common people. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he puts it more bluntly, right? It's one simple enemy
1: there's no reason to overcomplicate it this is this is the 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 center the foundation of of all extant fascism and all uh, anti-communist uh, and all colonial and all repressive systems that exist out there it's not necessarily the founder of all of them it's not the only cause but it is a cause in all cases and the primary cause in most cases possibly all yeah. right Um, All right. so on 621 of 1971, he wrote, The nature of fascism, its characteristics and properties, have been in dispute ever since it was first identified as a distinct phenomenon growing out of Italy's state-supported and developed industries in 1922. Whole libraries have been written around the subject. There have been a hundred party lines on on just exactly what fascism is. But both Marxists and non-Marxists agree on at least two of its general factors. Its capitalist- Orientation and its anti-labor, anti-class nature. These two factors, almost by themselves, identify the U.S. as a fascist, corporative state. An exact definition of fascism concerns me because it will help us identify our enemy and isolate targets of revolution. Further, it should help us to understand the working of the enemy's methodology. Settling this question of whether or not a mature fascism has developed will finally clear away some of the fog in our liberation efforts. This will help us broaden the effort. We will not succeed until we fully accept the fact that the enemy is aware, determined, disguised, totalitarian, and mercilessly counter-revolutionary. To fight effectively, we must be aware of the fact that the enemy has consolidated through reformist machination the greatest community of self-interest that has ever existed. Again, you know, people go, even if it's a minor self-interest... They will always act on the self-interest even against a greater self-interest and a greater good. And so there is a machination where very minor, just enough self-interest to keep people buying in and afraid to lose it has been constructed by the state so that, you know, an immense number of people would be willing to kill and die for their very repressors that hold them down from a much better life in order yeah. to not lose that might, minute interest. Yep. Yep. Our insistent on military action, defensive and retaliatory, has nothing to do with romanticism or precipitous idealistic fervor. We want to be effective. We want to live. Our history teaches us that the successful liberation struggles require an armed people, a whole people, actively participating in the struggle for liberty. The final definition of fascism is still open, simply because it is still a developing movement. We have already discussed the defects of trying to analyze a movement outside of its process and its sequential relationships. You gain only a discolored glimpse of a dead past. No one will fully comprehend the historical implications and strategy of fascist corporativism except the true fascist manipulator or the researcher who is able to slash through the smokescreens and disguises the fascists set up. Fascism was the product of class struggle. It is an obvious extension of capitalism, a higher form of the old struggle, capitalism versus socialism. I think our failure to clearly isolate and define it may have something to do with our insistence on a full definition. In other words, looking for exactly identical symptoms from nation to nation. We've been consistently misled by fascism's nationalistic trappings. We have failed to understand its basically international character. In fact, it has followed international socialism all around the globe. One of the most definite characteristics of fascism is its international quality. The next day, he wrote, The trends toward monopoly monopoly capital began effectively just after the close of the Civil War in America. Prior to its emergence, bourgeois democratic rule could be said to have been predominant political force inside American society. As a monopoly capital matured, the role of the old bourgeois democracy faded in process. As a monopoly capital forced out the small... Dispersed factory setup, the new corporativism assumed political supremacy. Monopoly capital can in no way be interpreted as an extension of old bourgeois democracy. The forces of monopoly capital swept across the Western world in the first half of the century, but they did not exist alone. Their opposite force was also at work, international socialism, Lenin's and Fanon's, national wars of liberation, guided not by the national bourgeois, but by the people, the ordinary working class people. At its core, fascism is an economic rearrangement. It is international capitalism's response to the challenge of internal scientific socialism. It developed from a nation to nation out of differing levels of traditionalist capitalism dilapidation. A- again, you know, you're seeing different situations that bring about fascism in different nations, but it's a cohesive movement. Mm. The common feature of all instances of fascism is the opposition of a weak socialist revolution. When the fascist arrangement begins to emerge in any of the independent nation states, it does so by default. It is simply an arrangement of an established, of an established capitalist economy, an attempt to renew, perpetuate, and legitimize that economy's rulers by circumflexing and weighing down, diffusing a revolutionary consciousness and pushing from below. Fascism must be seen as an episodically logical stage in the socioeconomic development of capitalism in a, in a state of crisis. It is the result of a revolutionary thrust that was weak and miscarried, a consciousness that was compromised. When revolution fails, it is the fault of the vanguard parties. It is clear that class struggle is an ingredient of fascism. It follows that where fascism emerges and develops, the anti-capitalist forces were weaker than the traditionalist forces. This weakness will become even more pronounced as fascism develops. The ultimate aim of fascism is the complete destruction of all revolutionary consciousness. He's very straightforward there.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and that's a great definition of it. That's a great way to to view what fascism's goals are.
1: Yeah, it, it is, right? You know, capitalism meets crisis, right? And it is dying, it is decaying. And what would replace it without fascism, of course, would be socialist revolution. And so any pushback in socialist, against socialist revolution, if it succeeds anywhere at all, therefore has a name. How do you continue this capitalism? How does it adapt? Well, it's a brutal crackdown against that revolution. And that brutal crackdown we call fascism. Pretty simple and straightforward. Okay. Yeah, again the next day he wrote, our purpose here is to understand the essence of this living, mo- uh, this living moving thing that we will understand how to move against it. This observer is convinced that fascism not only exists in the USA, but has risen out of the ruins of a once eroded and dying capitalism, phoenix-like to its most advanced and local arrangement. One has to understand that the fascist arrangement tolerates the existence of no valid revolutionary activity. Again, it won't even take the reformist liberal right. It it, no. it takes nothing right, and everything's a threat. Everything to the left is a threat. It has programmed into its very nature a massive, complex, automatic defense mechanism for all of our old methods for raising the consciousness of a potential revolutionary class of people. The essence of a USA totalitarian social political capitalism is concealed behind the illustration of mass participatory society.
0: The illusion of a mass participatory uh, society. The the illusion (laughs) of a mass
1: participatory (laughs) society, sorry. No worries. We must rip away its mask. Then the debate can end, and we can enter a new phase of struggle based on the development of an armed revolutionary culture that will triumph. And again, you see a little bit this this here now, right? Where we're talking about it won't take anything from the left. You know, it gains that that were gained with people's organizing, right? Anti racist gains, uh, gains in and gay rights, gains in trans rights. Um, you know, gains in and expanded. Um, social programs, gains like public schools after Reconstruction. Those have to be fully ousted, right? Gains and, and, you know, this is why they, they go so hard against critical race theory. They saw actual critical race theory as a threat. They really want to oust anything that shows truly what America is. So you demonize critical race theory itself, and then you throw everything under that umbrella term. It's the same thing they've always done with communism, right? Oh, communism. They demonize communism itself. That's the real threat um, to them. And then they take that and they define anything, anything remotely liberal that's slightly threatened to them. Anything that's pro anyone's rights, gay, black, whatever, and they attack it, and they attack it as communist, right? It's, it's, it's the same damn thing. It won't accept any revolutionary gains. That is fascism. And
0: again, we're seeing it firsthand even far more advanced and boldly than what George saw. Oh, for sure. On May 14th, 1787, the Constitutional Convention with George Washington, presiding officer, the work of framing the nation's new constitution proceeded with 55 persons and only two were not employers. There have been many booms and busts in the history of capitalism in this nation and across the Western Hemisphere since its formation. The the accepted method of pulling the stricken economy out of its stupor has always been to expand. It was pretty clear from the outset that the surplus value factor eventually leads to a point in the business cycle when the existing implementation of the productive factors makes it impossible for the larger factor of production, labor, to buy back the fruits of its labor. This leads to what has been erroneously termed overproduction. It is, in fact, under-consumption. The remedy has always been to expand, to search out new markets and new sources of cheaper raw materials to recharge the economy, the imperialist syndrome. That is a damn good one-paragraph explanation of one of the major fundamental problems of capitalism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting thought, too, because from an environmental perspective and from a human need perspective, overproduction is absolutely a thing. Right. And and we do have to reach back on our consumption. But the problem is under consumption. Right. They set a standard of consumption and they produce for that standard. And that that expansive standard is what's needed to uphold that economy and then the wealthy the opulence they live is getting to consume at that standard right and then we're forced to consume you know you need a cell phone to survive you need a car to get everywhere anything like that and every bit of poverty is under consumption, and then that leads to excess, and that leads to economic crisis, and then further expansion, and it cycles over and over and over. So it's a it's a really prescient, interesting spin on an observation on a, a Marxist concept, and probably a very very correct one. I really do like. It's not overproduction; it's under consumption. But again, you do have to go back environmentally to the, the idea that a lot of that production is overproduction versus human need and, and environmental you know footprint,
0: too. For sure. Conflicts of interest develop, of course, between the various Western nations and eventually lead to competition for these markets. The result is always an ever-increasing international centralization of the various capitalist elites. Worldwide- I,
1: I, I realize it, too. I, I kind of cut short on that, that underconsumption thing. So... With the underconsumption, you do have to realize too. There's always the market that doesn't buy. So I, I was saying the poor and poor people and the people in this country and needing that living standard. But also, every time there's that expansion, and this is colonialism, right? You extract the resources and then you sell the product back at a higher cost, and then they can't afford the the, the higher cost. So again, a lot of times the under consuming people aren't just the poor you know you need housing right but now you have to buy housing you need healthcare but now you have to buy healthcare the people that under consume these things because they're they're paupers out of it it's the people outside of the country right and you know um um the uh um, ip uh, rules that won't be waived for, for better, you know, uh, vaccines, right? So now Africa doesn't have any vaccines and variants pop out everywhere, right? People need, need roads and need better trade. But the only roads allowed to be built in Africa on these IMF loans are what the U.S. corporations that take over these countries are building for their own purposes, not the needs of the people. So it, it, it is an underconsumption. It's just a matter of where does that underconsumption happen? I, I kind of cut that off a little early. I should have finished no that thought. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Conflicts of interest develop, of course, between the various Western nations and eventually lead to competition for these markets. The result is always an ever-increasing international centralization of the various capitalist elites, worldwide cartels, international telegraphic unions, now international telecoms, universal postal union, transportation, agriculture, and scientific syndicates. Before World War I, there were 45 or 50 such international syndicates, not counting the purely business cartels. The international quality of capitalism is not happenstance. It is clearly in the interest of the ruling class to expand and unite. I am one Marxist-Leninist, Maoist-Fanonist, I like that combo. That's a solid combo, (laughs) who does not completely accept the idea that the old capitalist competitive wars for colonial markets were actually willed by the various rulers of each nation, even though such wars stimulated their local economies and made it possible to promote nationalism among the lower classes. War, taken to the point of diminishing returns, weakens rather than strengthens, strengthens the participant. If the rulers of these nations were anything at all, they were good businessmen. Expansion, then, which often led unavoidably to war, was the traditional recourse in the solving of problems created by a vacuous, vacuous, uncontrollable system, which never considered any changes in its arrangement, its essential dynamics, until it came under a very real, directly threatening challenge from below to its very existence fascism in its early stages is a rearrangement of capitalist implementation in response to a sharpening threatening but weaker egalitarian socialist consciousness in regional or national economic crises the traditional remedies also include measures which stop just short of massive expansion on the international level traditional controls short of expansion and war have always existed in the form of government intervention Tariffs, public expenditure, government export subsidy, and limited control of the capital market and import licenses. And monopolies have always used government to help direct investment.
1: Monopolies have always, always used government to help direct investment.
0: They Always. always. It, 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 always. They're always tied hand in hand. They're always interconnected at some level.
1: Yeah, I, I hate the expression of, you know... Socialism for, for the, 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 the rich, rich and, and, and capitalism, because it's not socialism. Socialism is the abolition of private property. They're, they're accumulating private property, right? But it is certainly, you know, government support and collective, um, collective resources going to the well-being of the rich and resources taken away and never given back, um, from work and taxation and, and collectivization from, the poor so that there is no collectivization it go straight to that private property.
0: Yep. And that takes us to our next section in the, or our next chapter within this section, section within a chapter. I'll get the terminology right. Eventually uh, <laughs> classes at war mobilization and contra mobilization is the header for this. Enough time has passed now since the emergence of fascism, the extreme crisis that precipitated it, and the hostilities that caused its early development to view it with less of the coloring that sensationalism and war propaganda necessarily create. We should now be able, after time has somewhat dulled the traumatic exchanges of debate and struggle, to analyze fascism objectively, its antecedents, its prime characteristics, and its goals. In denying its ideological importance, I am not suggesting that all of its advocates, of the especially early period, were opportunist or deranged individuals reacting to a personal threat to their own situation within society. A great many of the early fascist intellectuals were responding to to a very real social situation. As intelligentsia, keepers of the particular nation's system of values, art forms, and political thought, they felt it was their responsibility to attempt to resolve a growing social problem. My insistence upon the non-importance of ideology indeed rests squarely upon this point, that most of the fascist intellectuals were reacting to the uprootedness and social disintegration of the particular moment, and with each change in the face of this state of affairs, they were in large part forced to repudiate much of their former ideology. Weight is given to this observation by the fact that early fascism included an amalgam of expressionists, anarcho-syndicalists, futurists, Hegelian idealists, theoretical syndicalists, nationalists, and in the case of the Spanish Falange, intellectual anarchists.
1: Uh, it's it's the old uh, uh, Trotskyist to neocon pipeline.
0: There it is. <laughs> The whole theme of this early face of fascism was not merely anti-communist, but j- fundamentally a general indictment of decadence, bourgeois decadence. Fascism also absorbed some socialists. In 1914, the Fasci di Azione Rivoluzionaria formed its uh, it's it's, some, it's Italian I, I don't know Italian yeah. sorry formed itself out of a group. This is if we ever do Gramsci guys. Oh man, it's going to be bad.
1: <laughs> oh, oh no. it's going to be
0: so bad. It's going to be so bad. Uh, Formed itself out of a group of super nationalist patriots favoring Italian intervention in the war against the central powers. Benito Mussolini, a leader of extreme syndicalist fashion of the Socialist Party, supported them vehemently in his newspaper, Il Popolo dell'Italia. And, of course, this resulted in the expulsion from the party. And, of course, this resulted in his expulsion from the party. In March 1919, after the deep disillusionment and unrest caused by the Italian participation in the war, Mussolini formed the first real fascio. The intellectuals that supported him did not do so out of a sense of the usual role of the intellectual in society, i.e. to educate to the set of values of that society. In a time of extreme social disintegration and economic crisis, men like Bendento croci and arturo toscaini and others like giovanni gentile and Gabriele de Anuzio, one of italy's greatest poets whose name i'm sure i just butchered so apologies italy supported mussolini almost out of desperation at what they felt to be a destructive national breakdown all four were elitists; they may have also felt that their status as intellectuals was also threatened Recall the Russian revolution had shocked the world to its foundations at about this time, the general disregard of the socialist party for any art or scientific activity that did not serve the state and its tendency to factionalize and procrastinate alienated many of the nation's top intellectuals. But the final reason why the importance of ideology and fascism must be denied is the fact that it exists in more than one form. In fact, historically it has proved to have three different faces one out of power that tends almost to be revolutionary and subversive anti-capitalist and anti-socialist oh man we have seen that one right now we are seeing that one right now holy cow
1: yeah the out of power the the neither moscow uh, or now it's neither beijing nor washington um i guess there's still some neither moscow nor washington but russia isn't exactly a socialist country anymore um but yeah, I mean it's it's you know all of America's official enemies are in fact bad and you stupid dirty tanky Stalinist forever thinking otherwise how dare you uh but also America bad and it's like what what is your logical conclusion and historically that logical conclusion
0: has been it's fascism fascism that's why it's so and that's again George is pointing out so clearly in such a one sentence thing uh, a phenomenon that you see all the time it's it's mm-hmm. why Because people, I I hear this all the time when people are like, well, why are you, you know, you guys are ideologically probably the same. Why are you fighting? And it's like, no, no, because at the end of the day, there is an important part of the neither Moscow nor Washington crowd. And it's the neither Moscow part. Yeah. They can hate America just fine. But if they also hate the opposing ideology, there are not many places left for them to go. And one of the most popular routes is fascism. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's an outlet valve. It, it takes the pressure off, off the revolution when you're like, Oh, but the, the other side's super duper bad too, right? It's like, we don't defend Stalin because we think he's some perfect guy that actually did nothing wrong and that defending some dead guy's strategy or defending some dead guy's legacy is, is the perfect thing because we're not, we're not, you know, we're not hero worshipers. We're not into great man theory. We do it because we understand what people mean when they, they bash Stalin, what they mean when they uphold those propaganda sick lies and what those turn into. The yeah. Right. That's why. That's why we do those things. And you know, I mean, we see it all the time now. You know, if, if an American official enemy is bad, sure. You know, I, I oppose a war. Right. Maybe I oppose invading Iraq, but Saddam Hussein's bad. And Saddam. Here's one. Saddam Hussein was actually an anti communist piece of shit. They still slandered the hell out of him. Right. Even if you believe these leaders are are actually bad, everything that's being said in the media uh, about them is just a load of garbage that needs to be contended because we didn't when we didn't oppose the lies against Saddam who saying who is a bad person when we tried to do neither baghdad or washington guess what still fucking happened the goddamn iraq war which has still got u.s troops in iraq yeah. right which killed a million iraqis which it, had you know uh, what was the the uranium depleted uranium depleted dropped uranium. On fallujah um, fallujah i mean just fucking grotesque shit right yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you can't do this, this either or, neither this nor that shit. You can't, you can't be the the, the great anti-tanky guy, and the, and a lot of that that is what's happened in the West, right? You know, oh yeah, sure, I oppose, I oppose Washington, but every revolution needs to be to be perfect. You know, if you haven't, you haven't gotten your hands dirty with revolution, then it, it's it's where we talked about the the, you know, uh, I forget the brilliant the Brazilian. Um, Marxist that, that put out the article recently, but we have to understand America is a Christian country, right? And martyrdom syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I'm perfect, if I was always on the right side and I was never on the wrong side of anything, then I get to die a saint, even if materially that never led to revolution, right? I mean, hell, earlier we talked about the Frankfurt School because you brought it up and that that's just used as an anti Semitic dog whistle. The whole like, oh, capital campuses are overrun with communists, blah, blah, blah. That's just an anti Semitic dog whistle running back to the Frankfurt School but the frankfurt school was a prominent prominent school of anti-capitalism supposedly pro-socialism and anti-communism what country was that in what happened in germany
0: yeah right exactly <laughs> it all leads back so we'll we'll finish this paragraph and then we'll close it up for the week yes uh what, all right, so we have we've discussed out of power fascism, mm-hmm. uh, one in power but not secure. This is the sensationalist, the sensational aspect of fascism that we see on screen and oh. read in the pulp novels. I, I, when I room- should say.
1: I'm sorry. We, we focus too much a little bit too on the, the anti-capitals, anti-socialist out of power too. There's also the very much a lot of people characterize it as Bonapartist. And you've seen this very explicitly, very right-wing from Trump to Greitens and Howley to like, you know, I'm not establishment. I'm not one of these like establishment dumb. Uh, You know, they call themselves outsiders, right? Or populists Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And, and, and a lot of people characterize it as as like a Bonapartist, but it's just, it's just a fascist. That's all that is. They're just right wing. They say they're neither right or left. That means right, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a different, that's a different category of the out of power fascist that's anti capitalist, anti socialist. But as soon as you start with the anti capitalist or the anti socialist, um, from a starting point, there's an entire spectrum of left to right. But just like Stalin said, with the, you know the social democrat is the left wing of fascism. That's not to say like social democrats wanted to, you know, um, uh, you know conduct a holocaust and 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 you know genocide Jewish people and Roma people and, and all that. It's to say that that ideology ushers in fascism, and it's the vanguard against the communist revolution that prevents the fascism. Right, and so there's an entire left to right spectrum as well. The anti capitalist an anti-socialist out of power fascist and we shouldn't concentrate on just one especially when the the right-wing one is the far more prominent one as far as bigger threat and the far more scary one as far as yeah the far more dangerous one for sure yeah yeah. it being explicitly right-wing right now explicitly neo-nazi right now
0: yeah exactly all right. So then we got we have one in power, not secure. This is the sensational aspect of fascism that we see on screen and read of the in pulp novels when the ruling class through its instrumental regime is able to suppress the vanguard party of the people and the peoples and workers movement. Yeah, third, so this is yeah.
1: this is the anti CRT kind of thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're in power, but they're worried about their power slipping away. So they're throwing out great replacement theory and they're recruiting all kinds of, you know, clandestine or they're getting white supremacists to do their killing for them. And then, you know, not only have they taken the pulpit, encouraged them to do that, but then they're in, and not really discouraged it. Um, but then they're not really coming down on that but they're happy to like throw you know black people in jail for 30 years for you know having abortions or or supporting their their you know trans kids or having weed in their pocket or or whatever you know
0: Mm -hmm. and then the third phase of fascism exists when it is in power and securely so during this phase some dissent may even be allowed in italy Trilusa, the poet, wrote and published more bitter and biting satire as attacking the political regime that can be found in any of the so-called liberal democratic states. Hey, we let Trevor Noah and John Oliver on TV, so we can't be fascists, right? Because they're allowed to talk bad about the government. Look right. At you, wouldn't,
1: you wouldn't have free speech. You know, at least I can say my my, th- and that's such that's such crap. You could look explicitly in fascist Italy and
0: find the opposition. Yeah. Yeah. In April 1925, three years after the fascist march on Rome, Benedetto Croce was able to publish a clearly anti-fascist manifesto, and that is where we will end it for the week. Uh, again, these are um, these are these are huge. Um, yeah. th- th- that is a I I think that part right there, and you you made the comment. Oh well, at least I had the freedom to talk bad about my government. You'd get thrown in jail for that, like. Right like that kind of shit you hear all the time that no that doesn't mean you're any freer from a system that will they found a more elaborate and a more uh uh, pr friendly way to completely keep you oppressed and 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 thinking that you're happy about it that's not good that's not great gang uh, that's not ideal. Like th- th- again, to say that you look at you know, you know curtailing free speech being the so-called hallmark of some sort. No, the other side lets free speech through too when they're completely and and at what stage? And that, this is the part that should be terrifying. At mm-hmm. what stage do they allow dissent in yeah. power and securely so? They yes. know they have it. They know they've got the game wrapped up right now. They're in power and they've got all the backing of the state behind them. Of course, they can let you piddle around and have your fake dissent and stuff like that. That doesn't make it actually revolutionary. If it was actually revolutionary, it would be getting cracked down on.
1: Yeah, I mean, very much. So there's there's two things for that. When you know to come back on that comment, one is of course it's just historically inaccurate. You know, he's citing specifically, fascist but we should know. We should have that in our back pocket when someone says, "Well, at least unlike in, in like some Stalinist USSR, I, I can actually you know say that I don't like the government and not get arrested." It's like. You could do that in fascist countries, right? I mean, you could even, that, that's a misnomer, and that's not really what happened in the Soviet Union or in socialist countries either. That's full of crap, but even in fascist countries. So that's not the harbinger of oppression. But also, they, you know, they always do like the book burn and the book burn and the book. Those books that were burned was a college on sexuality that was exploring genders, that was exploring different sexualities. It was an uh, LGBTQ2 plus um, college, right, that was exploring all these things. And it was, you know, the first place to study, you know, gender affirmation and trans identities and things like that. In Europe, and they were burning that out of homophobia and transphobia, right? It's not a matter of that books were burned or that books themselves are banned. That's such a facile thing, right? Ban Mein Kampf, please, fucking God, do that, right? That's not the same as like banning, you know, the Communist Manifesto or a book on human anatomy or sexuality or anything like that. You know, it was what was burned, right? That was an attack on gay people, that was an attack on oppressed people, and it's not the book burn. That's the problem. That was a very bad, horrific event that destroyed years of science that could never be replaced. Right? But what's far more important than the book burning was the people killing. Right? And and people, you know, don't worry about the people killing. What about the book burning? Right? It's like it's it's just just anti communist falsehood garbage that uses fascism misconstrued as a supposed example of communism to equate the two, to support what really ushers in fascism.
0: Exactly. That all being said, however, we are at the end of our reading for the week, so if you would like to reach out to us, you are more than welcome to do so. Uh, Gmail, our Gmail address is Uh, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com if you wanted to reach out to us on Twitter our DMs are open and we are there posting uh, occasionally we would have at this point have wrapped up probably the final polling on what we'll be reading next this is going on in the future though so you will have already voted by the time you hear this so you know what the results were but Nathan in the past doesn't so have fun with that you time travelers you Uh, (laughs) that being said if you wanted to reach out to us on a more day to day level or just chat or just hang out and and uh, in a fun community uh, of for other communists that are of your ilk, uh, feel free to join our Discord server. Our Discord server is linked in our Twitter bio, and it's where we uh, uh, spend our day. David doesn't spend his day there; just Nathan. But I'll call David occasionally and tell him to come on in and talk, and he'll do it because he's he's he cares. He's he cares about you. Um, and that being said, David, it's time for a disclaimer. I'm being marketed here. David cares. Uh.
1: <laughs> but anyway um so we started this podcast a long time ago nathan came up to me he wanted to read capital and books of theory and history of things you want to read as a group um to make sure you know you're understanding them you're getting the most out of them you're reviewing them you're getting input you're getting context you're tying it back to today um and so nathan came up and said hey you know we should read this and of course there's only two of us you want a bigger group than that you want a group preferably tied to a party or a group you're organizing in um but with the two of us, we we did it, and then we thought we'd record it, hoping there was a big group, and lo and behold, you guys are here. And what we've wanted ever since then is hopefully these are the books you're reading with your party, with your – um, reading group that, that you're organizing with. Um, and so hopefully we can be another voice, another source of input, um, another person to give you those benefits of that group reading. Uh, let's say, you know, that's not happening and your group is, you know, reading something shorter, reading something more applicable to project that we're on, they're on. Hopefully we can be that reading group and give you those benefits. So you get the most out of the book. And then let's say it's like this, where we're reading word for word, or it's uh you know a book we summarize more, so it's you know, um less of an enhanced ebook, more kind of cliff notesy. Um if you are not reading along with it, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. When these works go into revolutionary action, that's a phenomenon called praxis by definition, of course that can't exist without theory and anything you want to consider practice you would want guided with revolutionary theory anyway Uh, and then theory of course is completely useless without the praxis. they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip
0: amen as always that being said this has been Mark's Madness Pod we read books my name is Nathan my name is David and we will talk to you all next week Bye. bye